As way of introduction, I just want to remind you that Hebrews, the book that we're looking at, um, perhaps a letter, perhaps a sermon recorded, uh, is written to first century believers who are weary from troubles, difficulty, and persecution. And they're seemingly willing to throw in the towel. They're seemingly willing to give up. In the passage we look at today, we're going to see the word rest 13 times. So obviously that is the key to the portion of the scriptures that we're looking at today. One of the things I want to get out of the way right at the start of this is the difference between the rest that I'm speaking of uh, and its opposite. The opposite of the rest that we're looking at today is not the mere difference between activity and no activity. It's not the difference between motion and standing still. It's not the difference between putting in three weeks straight at your job and taking a week's vacation. Those aren't the differences between the rest and the work that we're looking at today. But having said that, I do want to draw your attention to the fact that we are indeed a busy people. We live in the most individualistic culture in history. It's a broken culture ravaged by our fallen condition. We live in a society that is continually moving away from the traditional social roles so that people can be whoever or whatever they want. People work very hard in order to achieve their value and their worth. Many believe that your social class and the money you make will determine your value or worth. And intrinsically tied to one's worth is the need for acceptance and affirmation of others, from others. And among other serious issues, one of the ways we see this is in the rise of influencers. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, You see influencers in the news. You see influencers um, definitely if you pick up a device of some sort. And I kind of was wondering about this. It seems like a relatively recent phenomenon. And uh, I I read that over 50 million people, it seems like it's more than that, um, around the world now consider themselves to be influencers or digital content creators. Um, And you might think at first that an influencer doesn't really do anything. But the interesting thing about it as you look into it, it's like they work 24-7 at creating an image, at creating a brand. And they are the brand. And because they're working so hard to find value and affirmation and acceptance, they're also finding directly tied to this rise of numbers of influencers an incredible increase in depression and anxiety and other mental health disorders um, amongst this group of people. And there's multiple studies out there that show the toll that this is taking the harmful effects of seeking or working so hard to find value and worth from appearances, lifestyle, and now likes and impressions is causing severe harm on millions of people. And there's just an epidemic of depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues rather than the promised tranquility and satisfaction that they seem to be pursuing. There's no rest in this. There's no peace in this. The images and messages that influencers send out is not just to our youth, because that's the other part of it. We tend to think that this is only directed to our youth, um, though a vast majority of it is. We're all impacted by it. 
You might not think that you're following a quote-unquote influencer. But there's a lot of things that influence us. There's a lot of things that are speaking into our lives that we're spending a lot more time listening to those voices than the voice that we hear from the Lord, the voice that we see in Scripture, the voice of the gospel. We do need to be keeping in mind our young people. It's not just you and I who need the good news. Our youth need it desperately. You and I, though, as well, can be easily influenced by what we take in. We're constantly bombarded by immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds. Just think of the 24-7 news cycle that exists. I mean, at any moment in time, you can turn on the news and see something happening in some part of the world that you are not even directly connected to or affected by. It's easy to become immersed in public discourse that's based on outrage. There's a term that was coined, I'm not sure exactly who coined it, but I think it's a, a good way to think about it. There's this thing out there called outrage porn. It's the idea that uh, we are just being consumed by the voice of outrage everywhere we go. You see it, especially on social media. Twitter like, is a, a haven for outrage. People are being formed by these things rather than being formed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to be shaped by the gospel. And so rest... I didn't forget about rest. Deep spiritual rest that only comes from believing the good news is at the heart of what the author of Hebrews is conveying in this section of his letter. Though the struggle his audience faced was different, at the core of it, it's the same as what we face today. They were being tempted to turn to other things to find satisfaction, to find acceptance, to get the rest that they sought after. We, like they, need to see that grace really is enough. And so that's my title for today, um, although I pose it in the form of a question. Is grace really enough? Sneak peek, yes, it is. Today we're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to first look at chapter 3. We're going to look at the idea of being unable to rest. And then our second point comes from chapter 4 of Hebrews, where we're going to look at enter his rest. So as we break down the text today, we're going to look at the passage in pieces rather than all at once, because we've got a lot to go through. Uh, I encourage you, though, to read through chapters 1 through 4. Maybe you want to read through the whole book of Hebrews, but uh, at some point this week, read through chapters 1 through 4 if you get the chance. It should only take around 15 minutes. Um, just sit down and read that all the way through if you can find 15 minutes. I think it's good for us to see the context of it as we read it. But today, uh, we'll break it down by, by these paragraphs and whatnot. Um, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 first. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. So as we look at this, we need to see that the author here is building his argument on all the things that's come before. Um, and that's why I was suggesting maybe go home and read chapters 1 through 4, because we need to see the progression of what the author is saying. First, a sip. Jesus is greater. We've seen that he's greater than all the earthly powers and principalities and authorities. We've seen that he's greater than the angels who were the messengers of the law. They were held in high regard by the Jews. And now we're going to see that Moses is, or Jesus is greater than Moses. Let's not get that wrong. Who served as the intermediary of the law. He was held in probably about as high esteem as one could be held in uh, by the Jews. This letter was written to Hebrew or Jewish believers to tell them that Jesus Christ is the culmination of redemptive history, the story of the Bible, and that he is the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises, prophecies, and patterns. Moses doesn't serve us primarily as an example to us, like be like Moses. There's some parts of Moses' life that I would strongly suggest you don't be like. You know, he, he killed an Egyptian. He doubted God's promises. Moses didn't enter the promised land. He serves us by pointing to the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We don't usually think of Jesus as an apostle, right? He had apostles. Literally, the, this term, apostle, means sent one. He was sent from heaven by the Father with a specific message and a mission to fulfill. He is the high priest. This is a designation that will be unfolded throughout the rest of Hebrews. So consider this Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is above the angels, and other powers, he is also above or greater than Moses. This word consider speaks of meditating upon Jesus. Carefully consider him. A couple weeks ago I said furiously obsessed. This is a different word in the Greek, but um, notice kind of the amount of times this author is telling us to think of these things, consider these things, obsess over these things. He wants his audience to be fully aware of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The comparison of Jesus to Moses was not to say that Jesus was faithful and Moses somehow was not. That's not the comparison. In fact, Moses did serve faithfully in God's house, according to the author. Despite his failures, he served faithfully. Kind of like Abraham. He was considered righteous, but Abraham had a lot of failures. David is a man after God's own heart, yet he committed adultery And murdered the the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. But we're not looking specifically just at their faithfulness. Because these were servants. We're to look at Jesus, who is the builder of God's house. Moses served in God's house. But if the servant of the house, Moses, deserved honor for his work, how much more does the builder of the house deserve glory and honor? You know, when a building is built, we don't typically boast in the guy who, you know, painted the trim. Though he may have done a wonderful job. We typically talk about the architect, right? We talk about the guy who um, 
made the plans and designed these things. We don't typically think of the guy who, uh, you know, maybe served in some fashion. We think of the builder. And yes, I know that realizing as I say that, that that example probably falls a little bit short. But I don't know construction. Verse 6 here shows us that the house that we're talking about, this building that's being constructed, is not these four walls. We're not talking about a church building. As important and good as those things are, the church, the building, is you and I. It's God's people. Moses served, as we work backwards from verse 6, in verse 5 we see that Moses served God's people. And he did so by testifying of the things that were to be spoken later. Moses' life and ministry were to testify of the builder of the house who is Jesus. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses speaking to the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Here he is prophesying of a coming prophet who was Jesus. Moses, and as we'll see later in this book, the prophets, the priesthood, and even the whole sacrificial system itself all testified to Jesus. Paul similarly says in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets bore witness to the righteousness of God available to us in Christ And through Christ. The entire Old Testament is one large arrow pointing to Jesus. I wish that I had one of those arrow signs. You see them like uh, on the side of the road when someone's like advertising to go to a business and they're like spinning the arrows back and forth and doing all that stuff that I could never do. Um, I wish that I had a couple of those because Moses is spinning that arrow pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to what's coming. My job as a preacher and as a pastor is to point backwards to Jesus. So Moses pointed towards, and as we preach the gospel, we preach back to Jesus Christ because it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the son. And he not only builds the house, he not only designs the house, he's not only the architect, he inherits the house because he's the son and he's the Lord of the house. This household is his people who have their confidence and boasting in him. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This isn't talking about an earthly building. It isn't talking about a physical temple. Jesus is building his church by shedding his blood, his blood for it. He himself is the very cornerstone of the house. 1 Peter 2, 4-7, through 7, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is our confession. This is what our confidence is in. 
It's Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who will build his people, his church, as he told Peter, as we see in the accounts of the Gospels. I want to mention the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. This doctrine teaches us that our faith will endure. Not because of our works, not because of anything that we have, but because of our builder, the author and finisher of our faith. He is faithful. By faith, we confidently trust that we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so he is our only boast. He is our only unfailing hope. Let's read verses 7 through 11 here. And in this section, the author is going to quote from Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving... I read too far. I'll finish that line. An evil and unbelieving heart. So this letter to the Hebrews is different than other New Testament writings. There's not a lot written in here about sinful behavior. We see in a lot of the epistles written to Gentiles, there's a lot about sinful behavior. Here, the sin that is addressed is unbelief. And it's because of unbelief that Israel was unable to enter the rest that God had for them. In this portion of the passage, he's quoting David, Israel's greatest king, said Psalm 95. The author says that this is what the Holy Spirit is saying, not had said, past tense. He is saying, it's present tense. The Spirit is saying this today, and we're going to see the word today a few times in the the context of chapters 3 and 4. Today is the day of salvation. It matters for today, and that's the today of Moses' time. That's the today of David's time. That's the today of the recipients of this letter's time. And it's the today of our time. If you hear his voice today, pay careful attention to his voice. Moses led Israel out of Egypt. He was leading them to the promised land, Canaan, which we call Israel. He was leading them to rest. This land was first promised to Abraham's descendants. It spoke backwards to Eden, and it spoke forward to an eschatological rest, a future rest in the new creation. It was the land of God's safety, security, and salvation. Israel failed to enter into this rest, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The walk from Egypt to Israel, though long in the sense that if you're walking anywhere, that, you know, that great a distance, it's going to take a while. But it wasn't 40 years away. They wandered in that wilderness for 40 years. Now reading verse 12. The author takes this um, Psalm 95 and he applies it to his flock. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So is this saying that one could believe and unbelieve? Is this saying that you could lose your salvation? 
No. John 10, 28 through 29. We need to consider the rest of scripture uh, to make that, um, that determination. John 10, 28 through 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Eternal life is given and cannot be taken away from the believer, and the believer cannot lose it. Paul is telling us that the believer receives justification, and though it's a future and heavenly reality, it's also a present reality that the believer also receives glorification. It's written in the past tense, though it's going to happen to us in the future. It's just as much a reality as the word tells us that we're seated in heavenly places. Yet, here we are in Avon. (laughs) Hold that thought. So what is the author speaking to? See, we, we tend to think of salvation in terms of an experience. You can pray a prayer, you can walk down an aisle, and uh, boom, you're saved. This concept, though, has really only existed for about 100 years. Sadly, most teach that salvation then is maintained by our works and our holiness and faithfulness. One could make, therefore, a profession, walk down the aisle, say a prayer, And not believe. But scripturally, how people get saved is by hearing the good news and receiving it with faith. It is believing the announcement of the forgiveness of sin. Of what Jesus did as your substitute on the cross. So there's nothing inherently wrong with praying a prayer. Just know that by praying the prayer, you didn't become saved the moment you prayed that prayer. Salvation likely occurred before that event. When you believed the good news. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And in Ephesians 2, we see that even the faith to believe is a gift from God. The author is writing to a people who would gather together. They would hear the good news and some believed and perhaps some did not. Some might believe at the moment they heard and some it would take weeks, months, maybe years sitting under teaching of the good news. And in the meantime, this group experienced persecution and other troubles. Many of these people, probably most of them, uh, came from the old covenant. They came from the law. And so if they hadn't believed the good news and hadn't received with faith, they were probably being tempted to walk away and, and go back to what was comfortable, what was easy what they knew, perhaps what was safe. So for many who were hearing the gospel and being part of the gatherings, there was a real temptation to depart, to go back to what they knew, and they hadn't really experienced the rest that this author is talking about. They were walking the tightrope between the old covenant and the new. So the author wants his readers to consider Jesus as the scriptures portray him, if he is above the angels, if he is above Moses, if he is above the very law that they're tempted to go back to, then there really is nothing left to return to. And as we'll see in Hebrews 6, there's not even a sacrifice 
to go back to. They were all at different stages in their hearing and understanding. The author is reminding them all to hold fast. So believers remain anchored to the gospel. Believers continue, and as you continue in the faith, know that you do so by God's preserving work in you. So when you get to the end, what will have kept you is God's grace. Not your works, God's grace. But faith will endure. And those who are not sure yet, those who are waffling on the new covenant, wanting to go back to the old, he urges them to not turn away. But rather to place their confidence in Jesus, to anchor themselves to this message and not reject it in unbelief. And he says, take care lest you have an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you away from the the living God and his promise of rest. So he says, take care. This speaks urgency here. There's an urgent call. Church, exhort each other every day to believe. Sam Albury, an author and teacher, said, we don't go to church. We belong to the church. That is to each other. And so encourage and exhort one another. We belong to one another. We're members of one another. And so urge each other to continue on in belief. You are one of the means of God's preservation for your brother or sister. You are a means of grace in their life. Verses 15 through 19, continuing on here. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The author is thinking of those who are being tempted to go back to the law. They were walking that tightrope of law and grace. He's saying, if you hear the Spirit's voice today, and you reject that voice, you are doing what the Israelites of old, your forefathers did after leaving Egypt when they rebelled. What did they do? Verse 16 says they rebelled. Verse 17 says they sinned. Verse 18 says it was disobedience. What was the rebellion, sin, and disobedience? These are all synonyms here. What was the sin? It was unbelief. They did not believe the promises of God. They didn't believe the good news. Now, wait a second. This is a long time before Jesus came, right? Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. It it was. I'm not messing with the timeline here. But as we'll see in chapter 4, the good news was proclaimed to them. And they rejected it. In the Old Testament, it was a message of promise. God's promises to one day send the serpent crusher. The good news was preached all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. A prophet, priest, and king who would deliver them. In our time, under the new covenant, it's based on promises. Better promises. That Jesus has come. And he has crushed the serpent's head. And now there's forgiveness for you. Israel came to the very edge of the promised land. 
And they said, no. There's giants there. It's scary. They said they would rather go back to the slavery of Egypt because they had onions and leeks. In essence, they were saying, I'd rather die in the wilderness than enter into rest. Maybe highlight this word unbelief in verse 19 or make note of it somewhere because this is key to the argument of what is coming in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 and so on. Some of these passages that have at times caused confusion. This is the sin that's being addressed. It's the sin of unbelief. And there is no sacrifice for those in unbelief because being in unbelief is rejecting the gospel. So, We're talking about someone who is wavering in unbelief. We're not talking about a Christian who lied, cheated, or stole. Yes, those are wrong. There's a sacrifice for such a person. It's Jesus. That person has cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus' blood. The one who doesn't believe is saying, no, I don't need that. I don't need a savior. I'm a good moral person. I'm a good church-going person. I go on Easter, Christmas, and sometimes in between. I'm good. No, you're not. Our goodness, our righteousness is filthy rags. So the author is telling his audience to take a deep dive on grace. Is grace really enough? Yes. This is Israel, not entering the promised land, unable to rest because they rejected the message, preferring Egypt over God's promises. So today, if you're here and you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Take heed to his voice. Enter into his rest. So let's, let's look at that. Let's look at entering his rest. Let's read Hebrews 4, 1 through 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, lest Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Israel chose what seemed like the better option. This is ingrained in us. To choose what seems good or feels right. And grace really doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Chanel and I just watched a documentary. We've kind of been in this documentary mode here for a little while. 
We watched it on uh, Bernie Madoff. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that guy. He, he uh, operated the largest Ponzi scheme in American history. He robbed people of billions and billions of dollars. And in the process, he lost everything. His kids, his wife, um, both his kids died tragically. His wife, I don't know her status now, but um, at the time the documentary concluded, was living out of her car with two suitcases. Went from having houses in Paris and you know, Long Island and London and all this to living out of her car. It struck us when they showed the victims how many wanted not just justice, they wanted this man to suffer, throw him in a bottomless pit. And of course, you can sympathize with, with what they're feeling. And this is what we tend to think of as justice, someone getting exactly what they deserve and more. Grace is favor given to people who deserve the bottomless pit. And it feels wrong. Somehow unworthy people are made worthy by the death of the only worthy person who ever existed. That sinful people are made clean by the shedding of his blood. People, you and I, who were once dirty and far off, now made close and clean by his blood. And this is the gift of righteousness, uh, the gift of holiness, the gift, the gift of justification, and God's perfect love. It's all a gift given free of charge. It's too good to be true, right? And make it even crazier, it's gi- given on the basis of hearing this news and working really hard, right? No. It's hearing the announcement of the good news and believing it. Verse 1, rest is for today. You can enter this rest. Rest is salvation, living in the safety, security, and salvation of God. You can have that. He says, let us fear, lest any of you fail to reach it. This is a serious thing. It's not to be taken lightly. Israel didn't get it. They didn't heed the warning of this example. I'm sorry, they didn't heed God's words. And so we have their example. You won't get it by faithfully attending services. Though we love it when you're here. You won't get it by faithfully making the coffee. You won't get it by wearing a Christian t-shirt or having a Christian bumper sticker. It's all about whether you believe in Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done. Verse 2, Israel heard the good news of the promise, and they rejected it. Those who heard the good news However, mixed with faith, that is, receiving it with faith, some translations say mixed with faith, they have entered the rest. So believer, you have that rest if you have believed. But one could hear the good news, continually hear the good news, and reject it. So one can hear it and not get rest. The author then gives us the example of God resting on the seventh day of creation. God created the world, and then he rested. Jesus came and died for your sin, and he invites you into his rest. But rest is available to you, whether you are in this audience of the, the writing of Hebrews, or whether you're here, to today, here today, this rest is available to you. You didn't create the world. 
You didn't pay the penalty for your sin, but rest is given. So you can be both a recipient of creation and of this rest. Author Tim Keller tweeted this the other day. After creation, God said, it is finished, and he rested. After redemption, Jesus said, it is finished, and we can rest. This rest is a deep inner spiritual rest. It's living in the promises of God. You can contribute nothing to your salvation. You're just invited to live in it. Now, I said the early, earlier that the opposite of rest isn't doing things. Because works, at least good works, loving God, loving each other, serving one another, those are all good things. They are, in fact, good The opposite of rest is going back to law or anything you can do to somehow get on God's good side. It's rejecting grace in favor of earning. The only way we can do good works is by doing them as resting believers. It's the only way they're good works. Otherwise, they're dead works. So it's not doing the author is opposed to. It's the mixing of law and grace. It's earning that he's opposed to. It's going back to anything other than grace. Rest and grace are gifts. And this Christmas, my wife gave me a wonderful gift. If you were at group on Tuesday night, you might know where I'm going. Some really nice sweatpants to wear. They're warm and cozy, and they have pockets in case I need to store stuff while I'm lounging. It's nice nice technology, right? But they're nice. I I love them. They're very comfortable. So when I opened them up, because they're so nice and and just they look so relaxing, I got a shadow box and I folded them up nicely, put them in the shadow box and displayed them on the mantle because they're too nice. It's too nice of a gift. I can't can't take that. I, I have to display it so all can see. I don't really need them after all. I've got other sweatpants. It's a nice thought. But it's too good to be true. I hope you see that this is really absurd. I wear them. And I wear them often. Because they're amazing. I live in them. Hear where I'm going with this. Israel put the pants in a frame on the mantle. They took the gift of rest and said, no thank you. Israel didn't wear the pants. Some in the church receiving this letter hadn't worn the pants. Abraham, as you can read about in Romans 4, heard the good news and he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He wore the pants. David believed the good news. He wore the pants. I'm being really silly to illustrate this point. Don't hear this message and say, not today. Don't put it off on the mantle for another day. Don't harden your heart to this. Grace really is enough. And today is the day. In verse 8, Joshua, who followed Moses as the next leader of Israel, led them into the promised land. But he still spoke of a rest to come. So they got the land... But they didn't get the rest. You can see that through their history, the time of the judges, and and all the ways they rebelled all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't get the rest. It was still to come. 
David still spoke of a rest to come. Because they were pointing to Jesus. Jesus hadn't come yet. Israel got to enter the land, but they didn't experience the true rest promised. We don't have the time to really show their full history of wandering. God sent judges, kings, and prophets to call them to rest, and they rejected them. And when Jesus, the one who was the bringer of rest, showed up, what did they do? They rejected him. And he became the cornerstone of the house that he was building. Take heed. Verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. Did I say that right? Marrow, marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is strange language, right? Strive to rest, work to rest. What's the author saying? Work for salvation? No. This means that we must work against all of our efforts to prove our righteousness. We must strive or work against all our efforts to justify ourselves. Strive against your efforts outside of God's grace. Don't drift back to the things outside the gospel. Obsess over it. Carefully consider Jesus. The author says here, let us strive. So strive together. Church, do this together. Encourage one another. Not separately, not in isolation, but together. Why do we come together? Why do we gather? Well, Hebrews has much to say about this, and we'll we'll get there soon. Do we gather because you worry that if you don't, that God will somehow be displeased with you? I didn't show up Sunday, so God's going to, uh, I don't know, give me a, a blowout on the road tomorrow or something. We assemble or gather together to be reminded of truth. To dig deeper each week. To encourage each other and to receive more abundant grace. God's word, that is, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures and in the living word, Jesus himself is able to cut right to the heart of you and I. And don't be scared of this. I know it it sounds like pretty violent language, cutting to the heart, separating joint, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, marrow. I don't know how to pronounce that word. I'm not a scientist. Why do we come together? Why do we gather? Why do we gather around the living word? Why do we hear the word proclaimed? Why do we read the scriptures? Why do we testify of the good news? All of these things are for our benefit, not not to tear us down. We don't need to be afraid of this. Embrace it. He knows you. He knows what makes you tick. You have nothing you can boast in. He knows that. And so he did the work that was necessary on your behalf. All our self-righteousness is clearly visible to him for what it is. Filthy rags. So there's nothing hidden from him. So heed his call. Hear his message. That's why Jesus came. His message can separate what is self-effort and what is grace. But really the point of all of this, of these, this large passage of scripture, is Jesus. 
He was sacrificed so you wouldn't have to be. He was stripped naked and exposed so we could be covered with his robes of righteousness. He was forsaken and he was restless so that you could enter into his rest as one who has been found and accepted and brought into the family. When he died, he said, it was finished. What was finished? The work of self-justification that once ruled us has come to an end in Christ. And so you truly can find rest in him. So lay everything down. Wrapping this up with just a couple thoughts for consideration. Maybe you've been afraid of grace in some way, of going all in on grace. Afraid of the unknown of what will happen if you go all in on this good news that these guys keep talking about. Maybe you've been tempted like the people this letter was written to, to go back to what is known and comfortable. And certainly that looks different in our context. I can't tell you that you're going to have an easy life once you accept Christ. Or you continue in the gospel. The promises of this world, all the false ways that people find their identity, the pursuit of acceptance, affirmation, even the false promises of self-justification, all of these things sometimes appear to be more winsome than this life of the Christian. And yet there are some Christians out there who promise joy and happiness around every corner. I can't promise you that. Life is filled with trouble, sorrow, and suffering. And they're not going to go away in the life of the believer. But the gospel gives a better way. It gives the way of life in the midst of trouble and strife. And you'll find rest despite the outward circumstances. Somehow you can be at rest in the midst of trouble. In the midst of persecution. In in the midst of cancer. The testimony of the scriptures that we've looked at today show you that there is nowhere else to go other than Jesus. No church, no organization, no priest, no peer group, nothing. Just Jesus. Where else could you go? He holds the words of life. And maybe you're here today and you're tempted to pull away. Maybe you're facing hardships, weariness or trouble. Maybe even persecution for holding to the gospel. Holding to what is true. Church, encourage one another. These days are hard. We need each other more than ever. Encourage one another in rest. And rest knowing that he will hold you fast in the middle of everything you may face. Rest. If Jesus isn't at the center of all that we do, do all that we have, we will wear ourselves out. But he gives us rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rest that you've given us in Jesus Christ.
We thank you for your grace that enables us to experience that rest. Father, would you stir our hearts? Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet believed and has struggled whether to go all in on this gospel thing or to go back to what is easy, Father, would you just grant them the gift of faith and repentance today? Open their eyes to see the beauty of your rest, the beauty of your grace, the beauty of your son, Jesus. Father, would you just arrest their heart? Lord, those of us who are believers, may we be encouraged and strengthened and built up in you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.